excited about this series. I just kind of want to uh, uh, have, have a little uh, where we wrestle with some things today. Have you ever heard of this phrase, boys will be boys? Yeah, I have too. <laughs> I'd probably use that phrase. So let me take you back to the 1980s. Um, it was a, a, an amazing era. There was this movie that came out called Red Dawn. Not that new one. That's cheesy. This was the real one. Red Dawn. I remember uh, opening weekend. It was opening at uh, the University Shopping Center in Little Rock, which is at the corner of University and Asher. Red Dawn was released. It was open, and I was there with some friends. And you know, if you're familiar with that area back then, if not, I'm going to describe it to you. Asher and University. So we were at the University movie place, whatever that was called, at that center. And across the street, Asher was in front of that. Across the street of Asher was another movie theater. It was a little different, though. This movie theater, it played um, not normal movies. It played adult movies. And I'm not talking about PG movies. I'm not talking about PG-13, not R, not even NC-17. Nope, 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 nope. These movies involved one of the last three letters of the alphabet, multiple of those letters, and it was also a former drive-in. It still was a drive-in adult movie theater, supersized on the screen, and it was across the street, across Asher, and the screen faced away back towards the woods, if you can imagine woods in Little Rock, back towards the woods. Um, But it was separated by Asher, so um, that was across the street. Uh, It was around this motor court, style motel um, and kind of behind that motel and there was this path that was worn between the through the weeds down to a dirt path and it went around the back uh, where there was a place uh, where you could see through this privacy fence where it was no longer private in that spot you could see that giant screen so I'm taking you back to the 80s the release of Red Dawn We come out of the movie. We had just beat the commies. I mean, it was an amazing movie. And we come out all excited. There's four of us teenagers. And um, um, on this particular day, we had about an hour until our ride was going to pick us up. And so, what are you going to do with an hour? Four teenagers. There were two seventh graders. I was the eighth grader. And there was a ninth grader. And so the ninth grader comes up with an idea. He said, hey, let's head over there across to Asher to the drive-in. The two seventh graders said, great idea. And so everybody started walking. We crossed Asher Avenue and I start feeling uh, this conflict inside of me. And inside my mind, inside my heart, (laughs) I start feeling this conflict. We make our way around this motor court motel. And now I'm lagging behind the group about 10 feet. This tension is growing inside of me, and I don't like this feeling that I'm having. Something is telling me inside not to join in. But they think it's a great idea because, I mean, they're getting ready to see, maybe for the first time, some things that they have only heard about and heard people talk about, and they're going to see it on the biggest screen in Little Rock. Now we're on the dirt path. And it really is a dirt path in the weed, through the weeds, dirt path. Obviously, many people had been to this place before because it was a worn, single-file dirt path through the weeds. We're on the dirt path, and now at this point, now I'm shaking my head. 
shaking my head, this conflict going on inside of me. My heart is racing, and at this moment, I just can't take it anymore. I can't take that pressure. I can't take it, whatever it is, anymore. And I stop, and I shout ahead to the guys, I'm not going. I'm going back. This isn't right. And I turn around immediately, and I start heading back. Now, I just hear, I, I hear some kind of mumbling and grumbling. I hear excuses. I hear reasons. I hear threats. I hear accusations, but that's all behind me. I just keep going. I don't even look. I just keep going. I head the other direction. By the time I get to Asher Avenue, um, before we get back across the street, uh, they're all right there with me. Not very happy, but they're with me. That voice that I had in my head and in my heart was powerful, and I couldn't shake it. And that day, I listened to that voice, to that prompting. But here's the truth about Harley. I have not always listened to that voice, to that prompting. There are some very specific times that come to mind in my life when I heard that same prompting, that same type of voice. I had that same feeling, but I ignored it. And I just charged ahead with what I was doing. Have you ever had that feeling for you? That feeling of when you were about to do something, that feeling that said, this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. I ought not do this. I hate that internal conflict. It feels horrible. But it feels even worse later if I ignore that conflict. Now, we live in a world where there is this thing that we call morality. Now, for this series, I wanted to be kind of clear what we're talking about. What we mean in this series, this teaching series, when we use the word morality, we're talking about purity. So I went to Google and got Google's definition of purity. And Google's top definition, they pointed us towards the Oxford Language Dictionary. And here's what they said of purity. Freedom from immorality, especially of a sexual nature. That's what we're talking about. Purity in our thoughts and in our actions toward and our behaviors toward other people. That's what we're talking about. And if there is a failure in personal morality, it doesn't just affect the person making the choice. Now, engineers, they know all about this. It's called structural integrity. And we saw a tragic example this summer in Florida of structural integrity. When there is a failure in one part of the structure, in one part of the integrity of that structure, the other parts of the structure not intended to carry that load have to indeed carry that load. And eventually, those parts not intended to carry that load get overloaded, and they will eventually fail. We saw that in Florida. Now, a failure of personal morality always adds stress to the people around us in our lives. And over time... 
those people and those relationships will always begin to suffer because they are now carrying a heavy load that they were never meant or intended to carry. And it will harm them every time. All because it was too difficult for us to say no. And when it comes right down to it, really, we just wanted to do what we wanted to do in that moment, regardless of the long-term impact on everyone else. And that stress from that decision is always transferred to the people closest to us. We see it all the time. Think about your work. Someone may come to mind, a good coworker, a good employee, but maybe something happens in their home, maybe with their spouse, and their spouse has a moral failure. And that coworker now at work, their performance at work crashes. They just can't seem to hold it together because they're carrying that extra load. Teachers see it at school with children. We see it around us with other adults. Even a parent of an adult child, the adult child may not even live in the home. But if that adult child has a moral failure, that stress of that moral failure is transferred to the parent of that adult child. And they are impacted by having to carry that load. We see it at home, we see it at school, we see it at business, we see it in church. The load is always transferred. A personal moral failure always impacts the people closest to us. But the opposite is also true. When we have moral integrity, and in that moment it is maintained instead of a failure that maintaining of moral integrity has a positive impact on the people closest to us. And I want to admit right off the bat, this is a tough topic, especially today, given all the changes that are taking place regarding morality. There are still, though, certain things that most of us would say that is moral, and we look over here and say that is immoral. But my question is, how do we know which is which? And a bigger question for today is, who gets to decide? We'll come back to that later. Let me give you one interesting thing, though, here about morality. There is a universal expectation regarding morality. You see, we all expect our spouse and our boss and our pastor, we all expect them to have this morality. But for some reason, we don't have that same expectation for ourselves. You see, an unfaithful spouse really never expects that his spouse will cheat on him or her. They have an expectation. The, the person who's cheating, they, they have an expectation that the person they're cheating with won't cheat on them either. And you see what we're saying? There's a universal expectation for morality that we don't always apply to ourselves. We don't expect someone else to cheat on us. An assumption 
is being made. And the assumption that's being made has enormous implications. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Now, I want you to know, I have gained some enormous, some huge perspective on this whole topic. Um, I, I was listening to Andy Stanley teach on another topic. And as he was teaching, I was like, oh my goodness, this, this applies specifically and directly to what we're talking about today. And so as I was learning from him, I was like, we have got to present this and teach this to our people because it applies seamlessly to this topic of morality. So today I'm here and Cole is doing the same in Malvern. We are passing on what we have learned from Andy Stanley about this topic and we're passing it on as accurately as possible because it had such an impact on us. Now this is really, really deep stuff. If you like deep, you picked a great day to be here today. Because I'm going to ask you to hang tight with me as we work through this material and have, and are thinking about this, because this is deep. When we have an expectation of other people regarding morality, here is the assumption we're making. McKinley will put it on the screen. Moral integrity assumes an ought to that we readily appeal to that we assume everyone around us is accountable to. Let me say that again. Moral integrity assumes an ought to that we readily appeal to, that we assume everyone around us is accountable to. So a wife says to her husband, she says, you kissed that woman. You cheated on me. She's assuming that everyone agrees. That's the assumption. He might say to her, well, but we never really agreed to that. I mean, it was just a kiss. Our wedding vows didn't really strictly prohibit that. It didn't really spell it out specifically. Now, don't miss what he's doing there. It is so much easier for us to just decide that something isn't wrong. That's what he's doing. He's just deciding it's not wrong. I mean, he could say this to his wife. Well, you're holding me to a standard that you've just made up, honey. I mean, someone along the way, somewhere back there, somewhere, they just decided and came up with this rule that says it's wrong to be romantic with someone that you're not married to. So, honey, that's really your rule. You don't have a right to hold me accountable to your rule. Do you know what's happening? Deep, deep, deep inside of him, he really just knows better. He's just making an excuse. Yeah, We can make all kinds of excuses and all kinds of arguments, but deep down inside, he really knows better. And here's why. Because there is an ought to that stands outside of you and over you. Here's the next one. It, McKinley will have it on screen. And over you that didn't originate with you. There's an ought to that stands outside of you and over you that didn't originate with you. This ought to specifically it gets, it gets applied in many different ways across the world. But generally, it's there. That ought to. 
Now, we might deny an ought to with our actions, but we never deny an ought to with our reactions because we always expect other people to choose morality when it hurts us or it hurts someone we love. We expect them to choose morality because there's an ought to that stands outside of you and over you that didn't originate with you. Let's take this now a little deeper. If morality is not grounded in something other than us, all right? Go, go back to that previous one for me, McKinley. If morality is not grounded in something other than us, so something that did not originate with you, if morality is not grounded in something other than us, something outside of us, and very specifically, we're talking about something divine. If it didn't originate with something outside of us, something divine, then morality is changing and it will be defined and redefined and redefined again by personal and public opinion. Think with me. Marrying a six-year-old child to an old man. Think with me about that. An adult old man having a romantic relationship with a six-year-old child. We are outraged by that. We're outraged by that. Andy Stanley says it this way. Outrage at the thought, it's the next cue there for us. Outrage at the thought is an appeal to an ought. Outrage at the thought is an appeal to an ought. Hmm, think about this. Does your outrage at that, a six-year-old child being married to an old man, does your outrage at that and your outrage about that, does that outrage rest on anything more substantial than just, well, than just your opinion. More reliable, anything more reliable than, than the changing public opinion. Here's the next cue. If no ought that stands outside of us and over us, if there is not one, then that means right and wrong and, and, and good and bad and moral and immoral is simply determined by the majority. That would be in a democracy. That means we get to vote or our representatives vote for us. We pick them and they pick for us. We get to vote and determine what is and what is not moral. Or it's determined by the minority rule, which would be the case of a dictatorship or a fascist regime or communist regime. Then the minority rules and they decide for us. They pick. In other words, whomever it is, the people with power, they get to just make stuff up. They get to just do what they want to do and they get to make it legal and say it's okay. For example... There was a time in our history in the United States where the people who were in power were also at the time the majority, and they thought that it was okay to own slaves and to buy and sell these slaves, these 
people, not as people, they could buy them and sell them as property. And they could treat them legally any way they wanted to because they were seen as property, not as people. And during that season, the majority said, yes, that is good, that is acceptable. And it took generations later for the majority to finally say, no, that is not okay. They are not property. They are people, equal people. When morality is attached to what the decision makers think, it is so fragile because it changes and it shifts and adjusts. And at that point, morality only becomes a tool to make legal what we want to do, what we choose to do. And we get to just make it up as we go. So we can do what we want to do and live the way we want to live. Because after all, the majority says, or the minority who's ruling says, it's moral, we can do it. And this impacts all of us every single day. To this day, this tension is going on for us. So if morality is not connected to something that actually exists, an opinion doesn't really exist, it's, it's a thought. If morality is not connected to something that actually exists, if it's not bolted to something that is outside of us, not an opinion, something outside of us, specifically, if morality is not anchored in the divine then morality always changes. And it is just a tool to do what we want to do when we want to do it the way we want to do it. And it gets worse. Because if morality is the rule that's the majority rule, or if it's the most powerful rule, then they can decide that something is moral no matter how horrific it might be. For example, they could choose to send children and men and women of a specific race to the gas chambers to exterminate them. You see? If it's not true that there is an ought to outside of us and over us, then it really is just the survival of the fittest, the majority rule or the minority rule. Whoever has the most power gets to rule and decide. But here's the thing. The ought to in that case is just up to you. But we know better. Even if someone doesn't believe in a personal God, there's something outside of us that is pressing down on us. Because the moment that we attempt to justify a behavior in our minds, in other words, well, I know I shouldn't, but I know I really shouldn't do this, but the moment we try to do that, have that internal argument with ourselves, we are acknowledging the divine. We are acknowledging an accountability to something out there that we did not make up and we cannot get away from. Now Paul explained it much better than I can, so we're going to go to the scripture. 
Paul was writing to a group of Jew, a Jewish people who were following Jesus. Now, but these Jewish people were raised strictly on the old covenant law. And their lives were so in tune, so keyed into this old covenant law. Even in this time when Paul's writing. So fine-tuned. For example, Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, one of the three closest friends of Jesus while he was here on earth. Ten years after Jesus died and rose again and left the earth. Ten years later. So they've been starting churches, following Jesus, making disciples for ten years. Peter steps up to the house of a Gentile and he struggles with whether or not he can go or should go into that house. Because the old covenant law said a Jewish person could not go into the house of a Gentile. And he's there struggling with it 10 years after Jesus dies and is resurrected and leaves the earth and sends them off to go make disciples. He's struggling with it 10 years later. That's how in tune they were with God's written law. Now, Paul is getting ready to answer this question. The question is this. How were the Gentiles who did not have God's written law, how are they going to live in this spiritual world today, first century, this world where it is ruled by God's divine laws? How is a Gentile who doesn't have the law going to live in this world that's governed by his divine laws. And Paul answers that question as he writes this letter to the Roman believers. And here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 14. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it. Pause here for just a moment. In other words, something is doing something on the inside. That comes from the outside. In the life of that Gentile, something's going on on the outside, and he's doing something on the inside of that Gentile, like we talked about last week with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was cheating, he was cheating, cheating, stealing, stealing, extorting, extorting, and it didn't bother him a bit. And then suddenly it begins to bother him, and he says, I'm giving it all back, plus four times whatever I stole, I'm giving it all back. It's like people would say, What happened, Zach? Did, did you go read the law, Zach? He's like, no, uh-uh. I just met this Jesus guy and something happened. I began to see things differently. And Paul says, that's what's happening. He goes on. They instinctively obey it even without, here's what he says, even without having heard it. In other words, they have some kind of ought to that comes from the outside, not from themselves. And he goes on in verse 15. They demonstrate that God's law is written, not on these tablets, it's written actually on their, in their hearts, he says. And listen, it's not the sacrificial law. Paul's talking about that law of how we treat other people law. He goes on, he says, it's written on their hearts for their, con their own conscience. In other words, things are, are starting to begin to fire away inside. They're beginning, their conscience is beginning to be fine-tuned with God's divine law. His law, the divine law about how we live this life, treat other people, 
that is for everyone. Their conscience begins to be fine-tuned. And then he goes on. And their thoughts either accuse them. In other words, now something from the outside sinks deep inside their own thoughts. In other words, they've already made up their mind. And they start walking towards the drive-in porn theater. And something in their thoughts holler, ah, don't do that. Ah, don't do that. What's going on? Paul says, there's tension now. There didn't used to be tension. Now there's tension on the inside of us. And it comes from the divine, which is outside of us. So their thoughts begin to accuse them. Ha, ah, don't do that. Or he goes on and says, or tell them they are doing right. In other words, hey, yeah, you turned around. High five. Your conscience says, high five. You did it. You made it through. You didn't give in. You nailed it. Verse 16. And this is the message I proclaim, Paul says. That the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. You see, ought to is not completely up to you. There's an outside agent involved. And the moment that we attempt to justify a behavior in our minds, we acknowledge that there is this law of God written on our hearts. And we've wrestled with that our whole lives. We have been fighting that ought to our whole lives. And we thought it was just the expectations of our parents. And yeah, there may be some of that, yes. But it is so much deeper than that. Because every time we have that inner battle that says, I really shouldn't, I really, I really, I really ought not do that. Every single time that happens, ultimately, we have experienced the divine. It is an encounter with God who loves you, who has written his law on your heart and on my heart. And you didn't make it up. It didn't come from you. And we cannot escape it. And when we make a huge moral failure, guess what happens? The only thing we can do in that moment, the only thing we can do to ease our conscience, if it's something within our power, the only thing we can do to ease our conscience is to go make another really bad decision to try to ease our conscience. And our Heavenly Father, the whole time, He's saying, no, 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 no. Come back. Come back this way. Come back from the ledge. Don't get too close to the ledge. Come back this way. But listen, it's your choice. I will let you be as bad as you want to be. But I want you safer. And I want your family safer and your friends safer. I want you safer. Come back from the brink. I want you to wrestle with this. It's written in there. Should I or shouldn't I? It's almost as if God is saying to wrestle with our conscience is to wrestle with God because he placed his law in our heart. Because the moment that we attempt to justify our behavior in our minds or excuse it or think of reasons why we should do it when we know we shouldn't, we are acknowledging the law of God is written on our hearts. When Jesus came to this earth, 
part of what he was doing was restarting the kingdom of God on this earth. And as part of that process, he placed his law inside of our hearts. And when something rises up inside of us that is an ought to, you know, you, 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 if you do the right thing because that was raising up, that ought to came up, and you choose to do the right thing, you in that moment have intersected with the divine. You had an interaction with that divine kingdom that Jesus began to establish. And Jesus' response to that, we see it in the New Covenant. Here's what he says to that kind of interaction. He says, and I quote, You are not far from the kingdom of God when you acknowledge that ought to. You see, moral integrity is anchored beyond the changing opinions of me and you and the lawmakers. It's beyond the changing opinion. It is formed by something that stands outside of us. And it stands over us and it does put pressure on us. And it represents God's best for us. And it represents God's best for the people around us. And we know this. Because when someone treats us or someone treats someone that we love and we care about in a way that contradicts this, we appeal to God's law that is written on our heart. It is more than being a good person. It is us living in sync with the moral will of God. And when you do what's right, you declare the rule of God over you. You see, you're not just doing the right thing. You are declaring that this rule that God has placed in your heart, that rule of God over you, you are participating in the kingdom of God, whether you meant to or not, whether you believe in God or not, you're participating in that kingdom of God. And you insist that the other people around you be moral. You insist also that the people around you participate in the kingdom of God. So where does all of that bring us today as we wrap this up? Here's what we basically said. Today we said there, there's such a thing as moral integrity. And we said it is defined not by me, it is defined by the divine. And we expect moral integrity from others. And we celebrate it when we see it in others. And we can't escape it. Now that brings up a few questions. These are serious questions. What if I don't agree with God? What if I don't agree with God? And then if I do blow it, how do I get back to Him? Can I ever get back? to him. And there's even bigger questions than that. Say, what about, Harley, what, what about me or my, my family members who are attracted to the same sex? What about that? What happens with that? You say, Harley, what about me or my family members who feel like they were born in the wrong, as the wrong gender, as the wrong sex? What about that, Harley? 
And what happens, Harley, if, if in all of these matters of moral integrity, if I choose not to yield to God and I live the way I want to live for years and years and years the way I want to, what happens then? And so I just end with this. That's what this series is all about. So don't miss part two. I've got two next steps I want to suggest for you today very quickly. The first is just to think about this. Think about what we said today. That there is an ought to that is outside of you and over you that did not originate with you. Think about that this week. And then this. Be back here next week as we continue this series. Let's pray. God, there is something inside of me. And somehow, God, that came from you, outside of me. And whatever that is, God, it holds influence over me. And God, I pray that you would help me wrestle with that tension this week. Father, am I trying to just simply define morality in such a way that I can simply do what I want to do and live how I want to live? Or can I admit in my life that you have morality anchored to not what I think about it, God. You have it anchored to you, Father. Help me wrestle with that this week. And Jesus, I simply pray this. Would your spirit please draw us back here next week. Jesus, we ask these things in your name.